Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic episode for you today, so let's jump right on in. My guest today is Bill Steen, who along with his wife Athena, is one of the early innovators and promoters of straw bale building in the American Southwest through their company The Canelo Project. Now Bill was born in Tucson, Arizona and attended the University of Arizona where he studied cultural anthropology. Out of college he ran a yoga ashram in New Mexico for 12 years and he later took a couple of years off after that experience was over and moved to Canelo, Arizona 33 years ago where he and his wife Athena quickly started the Canelo Project, which is dedicated to connecting people, culture, and nature. He describes himself as someone who never lost the dreams he had that were born in the 60s in terms of more enlightened ways of living, whether it was spiritually or through sustainable ways of living on this earth. In this interview, Bill opens up about how he and Athena started the Canelo Project and wrote their essential work, The Straw Bale House and The Beauty of Straw Bale Homes. Bill also shares some of the most important tips and tricks that he learned in building through his extensive experience, how the aesthetics and natural building techniques of the Southwest have influenced him, and much more. Stay tuned after the interview, where I'll be sharing exclusive information about our upcoming workshops and apprenticeship opportunities with Abundant Edge. And don't miss out on this episode's weekly tip, which is all about the underlayer of natural plasters that you never see, but nonetheless are extremely important. Now I'll turn things over to Bill. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Well, hey, Bill, I've got a ton of questions for you today, and the listeners have a ton that they'd love to learn from you and your expertise. So let's jump right on in. Let's go for it. So for those of us who are listening who are unfamiliar a little bit with your backstory, tell us how you got started in natural building and how the Canelo Project began. Ooh, let's see. <laughs> let's, <laughs> that, it's not an easy one, but we can take it back to, I mean, my life basically has been dedicated to doing different things, alternative things, all the way back, <clears throat> let's say, into the 60s when it was more sort of consciousness-focused. And from there, I ended up running a uh, early community yoga ashram back in the in the 70s and um, finally <clears throat> I decided I really sort of wanted to get back to my roots which was for this part of the world working with adobe uh, organic gardening you know had come into existence for <clears throat> oh, like, oh maybe 10 15 years by then and I really I'd started there before I got into running the community that I was. but So <clears throat> it was more a desire to go back to those things that took me to um, focusing more on building as well. And so in that process, I just happened to meet a friend who had um, worked on some of the early straw bale buildings. And so for me, I started seeing it because I grew up in an adobe house in this part of the world. I started to realize, well, living in it, that it just doesn't insulate that well. So the early thing I began envisioning was sort of a marriage between clay, adobe, straw bales uh, as a way of getting 
almost the same look, but basically with an insulated wall. And um, that was kind of the beginnings of uh, where I am now. And so shortly thereafter, I met Athena and together, uh, we basically, well, on one hand, uh, started a new family um, with new kids. We launched into this work together. We put out the book, The Straw Bale House, and um, the rest has sort of carried us right to where we are now. Fantastic. Now, talk to me a little bit about how you and Athena came to write the books, The Straw Bale House and The Beauty of Straw Bale Homes. Well, <clears throat> what happened was that really, you know, the straw bale thing wasn't necessarily the, the primary focus, but, you know, sometimes events and, and life kind of takes you away. And um, what happened was that this friend that I mentioned who had introduced me to the concept of building with straw bales, he and I had done this little booklet, probably, I don't know, 40, 50 pages on newsprint. And with that, we, um, <clears throat> the process, we needed photos of uh, whatever existing houses and buildings we could find. And just by chance, um, Athena, sort of at the recommendation of her father, who was an old reader of the Lloyd Kahn's first book, Shelter. Oh, sure. Those are good suggest ones. Yeah, suggested the idea of building with straw bales. So without knowing anything, <laughs> she and her first husband threw together a really simple 200-square-foot little building and uh, that they lived in for a number of years. So I went. That's where I met her, was going to photograph that. And, yeah, well, in the process, she came here to our home in Arizona, where we are now, and um, set off on this path. But anyway, along the these booklets that I was talking about, <clears throat> my friend David Bainbridge sent me, oh, he sent me boxes of these things. And I had no idea of what to do with them because I really didn't have a distribution network. I didn't have a way to get them out. And they just sat in the closet. So one day, somewhere out of nowhere, Mother Earth News was going to do an article on Straw Bale Houses. And they called. They got was out and they got Athena on the phone. I, I don't know what she told him, but it must have been good because about six months later, we went to the mailbox and she had mentioned in this interview that we had this little booklet. Well, the, the mailbox, which was never that full, and it's a big mailbox, it was virtually full of envelopes with checks for $10 and one in this booklet. And this went on for months. I mean, literally order after order after order. And one day we looked at each other and we said, well, perhaps we should do a book. <laughs> and so I called up my friend David and I said, uh, what do you think? And he said, well, I already got a contract with Chelsea Green Publishers. And we were kind of on our way. And that's that was it. I mean, that sort of has defined my life. It did definitely for, especially in the early years, and um, still won't let go of me. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> now, you mentioned something earlier about how you grew up in Adobe Homes yourself. 
How have mm-hmm. the beautiful traditions and the aesthetics of the traditional architecture in the southwestern United States helped to affect and inspire your own building style? Oh, I think if you walked into one of our buildings, um, any number of them, at least ones that we've done in this area, you would be hard-pressed unless I told you, right, which was which, to tell the difference. And kind of the style that we've built on here, the adobe homes, you know, they kind of evolved and graduated from the early flat roofs to more pitched roofs with corrugated metal when the railroads got out here. And so with the railroad, you know, you got dimensional lumber, you got corrugated metal roofing. And so you got this style of adobe <clears throat> that evolved out of that. And um more or less, we just copied that, you might say. I mean, our buildings look, if you go to some of the old towns in this area and you see the old adobe buildings, um, it's you can't tell the difference often. Often ours are a little bit more artistic and they've got more curves in it. But we've always subscribed to the, you know, given that you're looking at what's the easiest way or most practical way for other people to build, you know, you look at what's available. And for us, basically, you know, the difficult part always comes down to the roof. And consequently, we've always sort of been supporters of, okay, build a simple rectangle. Don't try to get fancy. Don't, you know, get out of control. And then you can use existing prefabricated trusses and you can insulate well. You can make a really good durable roof. And then to your heart's content inside that rectangle, curve, shape, bend, you know, do every contortion that you want to exhibit that you've had stored up, you know, for many years. And um, that's kind of what we do. So that rectangular model you're saying is most useful when designing the roof and putting in simple roofs? If you want to insulate, let's put that, let's go back. I mean, two things. One, in this part of the world, asphalt, well, I hate asphalt shingles, but um, fired clay tiles weigh a ton. Basically, your corrugated metals in this part of the world last forever. You can have a truss made that allows you ample insulation space so that the heat, the cold doesn't penetrate. And um, that's primarily why um, we've gone that way and we've sort of developed a building to um, building style with the walls and everything that uh, correlates and with that and ties together with it. Now, aside from that, I was hoping that perhaps you could share some of the key tips and tricks that you've learned over many years of experience in creating durable, beautiful and comfortable straw bale buildings. What are some of the most essential things that you know about this process? (laughs) I think think it's kind of like you. In our conversation prior to actually getting started with the interview, saying that it really kind of depends where you are. Um, um, You you have to really sort of look at your site, look at – I mean, one, there's the local – climate in general, but then there's all the characteristics of the site, you know, that you're building upon. And um, 
for us, you know, straw bales have been really a great material. And I think, honestly, <clears throat> any place, you know, where you're within reach of straw being, you know, a byproduct of, of grain cultivation, you can, if you do it well, you know, if you build well and you're not careless, you don't, you know, get damaged by water. You can build really just about it anywhere you want. And I think the thing that differentiates us from other people is that, especially in the States, I mean, it's not so much true in Europe, but we've really, from, from day one, our way of building was really about the marriage of clay or adobe with straw bale. <clears throat> so we were always trying to configure our buildings so that we had good ground clearance, right, from splash splashback or, you know, sheet flooding. Uh, and, and always wanted to make sure that we had <clears throat> adequate overhang, right? if not uh, verandas, porches, things like that. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of little tricks. We spend a lot of time looking at window details, window sills, um, and ultimately, you know, I think mis one mistake that people often make, you know, right off the bat is thinking that your plaster or your wall finish is really your protection from the elements. And I think conversely to that, it's really would be better to say it's the last line of defense. In other words, you've got a big list ahead of you that you have to resolve. And... Um, so you can imagine in putting a clay finish on walls, <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit more sensitive to moisture than, let's say, ah, let's say perceptively you're going to think that because you're going to see some wear maybe on the earthen finishes. But the actual truth is it's very difficult for that water to get through the clay and to ever reach the straw, whereas if you have something like a lime finish, uh, or a cement lime or cement finish, they tend to soak up water, soak up moisture, and take it directly to the straw. So I think that's one of the early things that we figured out. And then we also um, kind that, of abandoned. Is that now yeah. mostly through the cracks that form in yeah, lime? it's or just through the material itself. Really? Yeah, they're highly absorbent of water. They may not necessarily wear on the surface, but they will soak up water. Whereas the clay will, but it's kind of like sealing a pond. The water stays in the pond, right? It doesn't go all the way through. Sure. The, the clay layer that's being wet is expanding and not allowing water to percolate through. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, there obviously has to be some limit to that at some point for the quantity and the amount of moisture. But um, in general, you know, I think it's safe to say it's a really good barrier. And the thing that we did was we evolved uh, sort of a plastering system that instead of thinking about it like using the, the clay and the earth like a conventional mm, masonry stucco or plaster, we started combining it with very large quantities of straw. And so the result of that, interestingly enough, was that we ended up with a finish that, although it might wear, 
Yeah, it wears very slowly and it lasts for a long, long time. Uh, so <clears throat> that was a major thing that we were able to do because we could put almost in one coat, we could get an inch and a half to two inches of uh, coverage <clears throat> in terms of depth uh, in one application. And that's mostly due to the addition of the fiber? Mm-hmm. Clearly. I mean, it wouldn't be the same without it. You wouldn't be able to get that thickness on? No. Not, not even close. Does it help as well with the adhesion to the bales themselves? Well, we've always used, um, and I'll have to quantify it by saying, a wet clay slip to go over. I mean, I've watched people over the years try to apply a clay slip and then let it dry and then go over it. It doesn't work anywhere near the same way, right? It's just kind of like applying a primer or a bonding agent to any kind of wall and then going directly to it. Right. So the fiber, actually, if you get, you know, the thing is, you can keep the, in that kind of plaster, you can keep the clay quantity percentage really high. And therefore, if you've got the clay slip or primer on the wall, then they stick together really well. And this is as opposed to having a higher percentage of sand? Yeah. I mean, we only use maybe more sand than clay when we're at the, the finish level. And that's typically more for interior plasters than it is on the outside. Just to get a better finish and to prevent cracking? Well, for people's aesthetic, sometimes you want a different look or you want colors or you want this, that, you know. Now, some of the most characteristic aspects of your work, I know, and the work of the Canelo Project are the really gorgeous decorative sculptures and relief carvings in the natural plasters that you apply. Now, this goes on to what we were just talking about, getting different finishes uh, by adding different materials. But what are some of the, the key things that you use for adding color, for adding different aesthetic elements, and those relief carvings as well? Well... <clears throat> If we're looking at color, it's typically then it, we define it in the two categories. One is if you want sort of earth tones, then we go looking for different clays. And over the years, we've, you know, collected uh, fair amounts of different colors, um, get them stored away, many of them stored wet, right? You can literally just pull them out, turn them into uh, a clay paint uh, made on site. You can do thin veneer plasters. And if it comes down to adding um, bright colors, like let's say you want a bright blue or you need a purple, typically we look to um, doing uh, a, a lime plaster and then frescoing it, meaning we take just pigment and water and mix them together. And when the plaster is still damp, we paint onto it. And that way it really fuses the, um, the color into the plaster. So it's not another layer. And uh, we actually do that a fair amount. Um, so that's really sort of an important ingredient in our in our repertoire and it's so simple i mean people have no idea how easy that is to do although a slightly more complicated procedure is that um 
we had a friend here from Japan who's doing some plaster work and he had <clears throat> sculpted into the wall this agave cactus and um, he wanted to turn it blue for color but we really didn't want to plaster it with lime because the clay was still wet. So there's a product, it's a water glass or potassium silicate product called um, Primacil made by a Canadian company. I'm sure there are other European ones, but um, with that you can dilute it with a little water, add your pigment and it really becomes a, very resistant paint. It's great over any kind of masonry. So in this case, turned around and we use that. Have you used this potassium silicate for any other types of finishes when you're looking to waterproof or strengthen a finished coat? Because I know I've used it for a few. After trying it, right, I've found that you need really a little bit more complex formula to get it to really provide good waterproofing. Like the company that we used before they were bought out by somebody else was mixing what's a very popular, relatively inert, uh, vapor permeable, breathable, if you like, uh, material called siloxane. And that they would add to their water glass uh, primer to get it to um, be really water resistant. So we haven't really sort of used it beyond that. I think the one thing that would be climate specific primarily to this area because mold wouldn't be a factor. The most efficient thing we do, the most effective thing I will say is we use a coat, one coat of linseed oil um, over earthen finishes if they have sand in them and we're trying to waterproof uh, a little bit more. We'll do that and it's, it's relatively inexpensive, easy to do. And as long as you don't get carried away trying to do a bunch of coats on it, uh, works really nice. But again, you start getting into areas where mold is a factor or perhaps Guatemala where you are, where you've got a lot of humidity, a lot of water. It may not be, you know, as practical. However, I'm doing a little experiment for the people at Rancho Mastatal in um, Costa Rica because we did an earth floor for them. And they were trying to figure out um, what to use, maybe in place of linseed oil, which is the common thing that we use up here, because one, the quality isn't very good, and two, it's difficult to get. Um, the one thing that they have in bulk for cooking, and uh, yeah, I think they do all their cooking with it, is lard. So I've been running a couple test samples for them. Uh, floor sample floors, and um, it's worked really well <laughs> in terms really of water finishings. Yeah, we've used it just like the linseed oil. You heat it up, you know, apply it, and then you could progressively thin it. But it makes it incredibly waterproof. How much, you know, durability it adds in terms of abrasion resistance, you know, I can't say because. Uh, you know, I don't have it on a floor that's being used, but it would certainly be worth experimenting with. Certainly. And, yeah, though it's not a hard-drying fat source or You're oil right. source, there might be enough structure in the floor itself that, you know, it, it doesn't need it as much. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting to see. I mean, it definitely does not 
fall into the same categories, linseed oil, walnut oils, and other hard drying oils. But <clears throat> hey, <laughs> perhaps it works. I don't know. Right. I think that's one thing. It's so easy to get yourself sort of shut off, you know, and and sort of develop a closed set of ideas that you you stop that experimentation. So that's I've something I've definitely this. always admired about your work and the Canelo project and Athena as well is that you guys have always been really open to experimenting with new things and trying new stuff. And um, I love the fearlessness. It really helps to inform the larger community. <clears throat> well, <laughs> I have to laugh at the moment because, you know, you end up, our kids now are, the, the older boys are, <clears throat> I think, 24 and 26. And the funny thing about that, you watch them sort of branching out and sort of experimenting. Right now, the younger, the 24-year-old, he's building a whole tiny home in a trailer using uh, big sheets, four-inch thick sheets of uh, foam panels. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. like, okay. <laughs> so, High insulin value. Uh, well, yeah. And the thing is, you can say, well, a lot of people wouldn't even go there because it would seem, you know, there's so many contrary issues. But at the same time, you know, if you're aware of the different foams that are being developed slowly, like, oh, a couple of guys in Mexico have developed one out of tamarind seeds. Um, you've got the you know, stuff being uh, grown out of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. It won't be long, you know, until you see the appearance, uh, you know, of other foams that are have natural bases to them instead of polystyrene or styrofoam. <clears throat> so... It's not far away, and so if you can take a few steps to experiment with it and look at it as a structural system, you know, by itself, then perhaps down the road you never know, you know, it may have value. So True, and the way that they keep innovating with it, it might even become something that we would consider a natural material. Exactly. So who knows, you know, it's um, perhaps down the road. Well, it's exciting to see the development for sure. But anyway, I think, yeah, I mean, we, I think one of the fortunate things that we've been able to do over the years is we have literally worked with people from, well, at least that were involved with clay from all over. I mean, from Germany to Japan to Mexico to Central, you know, there's a whole um, cast of people that have really been part of our lives over the years which has really been fantastic. And that just keep you know, the more you do that, <clears throat> the more it just keeps um, expanding your ideas, right, and how you see things. That's fantastic. And now speaking of that, um, I've always wanted to know, because you've worked a lot in Mexico, and now since I'm living and working in Guatemala, I'm always interested to hear about other people's experiences in this region. So could you tell me how you got started working there? and how your natural building projects have been received by those communities. Pretty simple. <laughs> we, <clears throat> when we finished the Strawville House, we'd taken about a year and a half off to write it. We really didn't have a lot of money or resources, so I think at the time we, oh, it was easy to get credit cards in those days. I think we got a few and we sort of maxed those out just simply with no thought of practicality, only because we really wanted to do this book. So 
by the time we were done, you know, you finish the book and it gets released, but it's got to get printed, it's got to get distributed, and then God knows how long it's going to be before you get any royalties, if you're going to get any royalties, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a little program at the University of Arizona called um, Farmer to Farmer, and they were basically sponsoring people with different technologies, different ideas to go down to Mexico and, um, and work. And there was a big wheat growing area where they were having a straw disposal problem. So they thought, hey, <laughs> we'd be perfect to go there. So um, off we went to this. Um, it was actually sort of the birthplace of the Green Revolution. And we ended up, um, they paid basically food, travel, and housing. No, you know, no wages, no supply. Hey, <laughs> it was like, I all right. I too. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so anyway, um, we just went to work and we just, you know, at, at, at the same time, there was a um, major crisis with the economy, devaluation of the peso. And what happened was that... Um, Sort of everything came to a halt because cement became extremely expensive. But while walking through some of the um, poorer communities there, we started thinking, well, you know, it really wouldn't be that hard to, you know, you look at these cardboard houses, things like that. that well, we can better this. <laughs> it wouldn't take much, but let's, let's go to work. So we just started, and we made another trip, and then they paid for us to go back in another trip, and we just kept going. And part of the fortunate part of that was that um, a, a, an organization, Save the Children, was sponsoring a lot of activities in, in that area, in these communities. And so they were able to secure money from uh, the international organization to build an office building that uh, that employed all these different techniques that we were evolving. And we were really um, at the point of, I mean, we're trying everything and we're trying to do it all basically as much as we could with local materials. So we had the opportunity, this office building ended up being about 5,000 square feet. So it was a big um, undertaking. It took us a couple years, and we worked with this family oh, from that area that um, it's kind of like 10 brothers and sisters. And um, we kind of joined hands with them, and they brought in all these sort of young kids from the community to work uh, on this thing. And um, it was just every room, you know, was a new experiment, um, different roof, different technique, different this, different that. And that's really where we sort of um, cut our teeth, so to speak. And many of the things that we started then, we, we still follow today. I mean, as is always, you know, when you're doing something new, um, you make a lot of mistakes on the way, or not, they're not mistakes, but they're things that you look back at now, and obviously you could do much better, and that we do do better, but um, they're just part of that process. And luckily, you know, we had um, 
people to work with the, the, and somebody to sponsor it. The difficult thing there, because um, it's a very much a desert region, was the roof. You come back and you say when there's really a shortage or non-existence of wood, and you have probably more termites almost than you have any place else on the planet, um, how do you do a roof, right, in a, in a practical way? And so, yeah, that was always the biggest thing that we were up against. Uh, and in that process, we started experimenting with, you know, Nubian vaults and domes. And really the conclusion you come to there is that, well, two things. One, the average person, they're just not going to be able to do it. I mean, sure, somebody with skill and who's willing to be trained and, you know, pursue it in depth. Yeah, of course they could do it. But the other problem, too, was really finding a covering, right? Because you don't get great adhesion between lime and earthen substrates. So trying to look at things like lime finishes or things like that, yeah, it just, you know, it didn't work. So we kind of basically just abandoned that. And um, probably at a time when we're ready to pursue that in more depth, Save the Children lost their funding. Um, they sort of let go of the people, you know, that we've been working with. That basically, we're working for them. And um, we came back home <laughs> and um, continued our work here. But the thing was, was we – it was really a period of when we started translating what we learned there into building systems that we were using or could use here. And um, we'd spent six years there intensely, off and on. And so, well, really it was time to come back and, and do something a little different. So we started putting the work and effort into our place here, which we'd really ignored <clears throat> during that time period. So that's a brief history for you. Fantastic. Now, along with all those different experiments that you talked about, I know you're a very passionate, lifelong learner. Can you tell me about some of the things that you've learned recently or are learning currently that have really helped you in your work and improved your skill set? Probably the, the biggest thing there was that um, the importance of the roof. <laughs> um, just what a critical piece that is in the equation, you know, of a really good built, successful, long-lasting building. Because the building, the big office building we did there was with essentially your flat roof with parapets, which is really the common style for that part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you look at and you realize what are, what are the different ways you, you could be, you know, doing that, uh, carrying that out. Um how did to, you do it on that project? What were the layers that were built up for the flat roof? Uh, I mean, we went, we plastered the whole building initially with lime over the clay plaster, earthen plasters. And kind of, you know, it's only a matter of time. It's either going to happen quick or it's going to happen down the road. All of that delaminated. For the most part, I mean, it just became weak, hollow in different spaces. So we took it all off and went back. And um, 
essentially, you know, you come back to the to the same old equation that people have used uh, over those, you know, those situations was we ended up having to put um, some sort of metal reinforcement, you know, lath over the building and coming back to at least sufficiently vapor permeable mix of equal parts cement and lime and, and sand. And that ultimately um, covered the walls. Really, if you have parapets, you, you need some sort of cap at the top as well. And we use something in that case. I can't remember at this point what that was, but you need some way that the water's not hitting the plaster directly. But I think in retrospect, I mean, there, if you didn't have any other option besides that, I would have simply just extended that roof out maybe a meter all the way around so that, or it wasn't really a porch, but uh, the equivalent of a very small porch, but really a really big overhang. Um, and done it out of maybe something like fired brick for the parapets or something like that. I don't know. Um, have, have you experimented at all with flexible liners, such as tarps or pond liners and things like that for roof systems? Those really weren't. You know, the thing was at that time, because this is back, you get to think, kind of mid-90s, we're thinking more about local materials as much as we could. Sure. Um, those really hadn't appeared to the same extent that you see them now. Um, and then the question was, you know, then how would you have used them? We didn't really have, see, we didn't have any leakage. I mean, and we did some amazing roofs through the different structurally through the whole building. I mean, using reed-like bamboos, I mean, bamboo-like reeds, um, vaults, don't, I mean, we did, it's an incredible, if you ever go to our, if you go to our website at canelloproject.com and into projects there in the Mexico stuff, it's, you know, some there's some amazing things. So leaking was really not a problem. It was just always, it's always that parapet, right, that gets you. Sure. And so that's one. Two was recognizing, especially if, if you have earthen finishes, just a really clean break with the ground and sort of a stem wall that's appropriate for whatever kind of rainfall you're dealing with. And in, in that case as well, termites. Um, learn the importance of windowsills, right? How critical those are. Um, I think those are the big ones, you know, and maybe because <clears throat> we had done a small amount of earthen floors in there and the different offices, mm, just saying that, you know, given the kind of office chairs that people have or this, that, or the other, eh, it's kind of like saying not really the best choice, you know, maybe in, in rooms that have, you know, lower use or lower occupancy. That's um, okay. But um, so we just sort of went, you know, went down the list. But I think <clears> – <throat> Separation from the ground, windowsills, um, roofs, you know, uh, definitely at the top of the list. That's a good uh, essential list for people, especially who are putting in priorities for their own projects. Mm -hmm. You're not kidding. <laughs> I mean, if you don't get those right, then you might, you know, it doesn't matter what else, you know, um, 
you got, you know, whatever else you do. I mean, right. you're just going to be chasing maintenance projects forever. Oh, forever. You know, um, fact over, I would say probably a, a, over all these years for straw bale buildings that I've looked at that had moisture damage, you could easily say more than 95% either were due to the bales got wet before or during construction and lack of a windowsill. Oh, sure. Uh, those, that's it. I mean, yes, there's always a few other things in there, but by and large, right, it all came down to that. So if you can take care of those two main things, make sure that you're installing dr perfectly dry bales and that your windowsills are well protected. Exactly. You can avoid 90 to 95% of those issues. For sure. No question about it. Um, I mean – Water damage or moisture damage due to vapor getting trapped in walls, ah, it's so rare. I mean, you have to have big extremes in climate, right, and temperatures for that to happen and et cetera, et cetera. Um, just not that common. Sure, and if you're building with straw bales in that type of a climate, you may want to consider a different material anyway. Yeah, especially where you are. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, are they growing rice anywhere near where you are? No, it's corn stalks around yeah, see, here. I mean, just having been in Costa Rica and having worked there now for several weeks, I mean, granted, that's not a, a big period of time, but the thing that you really realize is that, hey, <laughs> this is about airflow, right? Um, Absolutely, yeah, that's the big thing here. We're fortunate, although we live in the mountains and it can get a little bit chilly for, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks out of the year, you put a sweater on. Uh, we're in a fortunate position where we really don't have to worry about insulation and yeah. the criteria for the wall systems here are much more focused on uh, earthquake and water prevention or exactly. keeping those things out. So, yeah, it's just like we, we've been talking about from the beginning. Get to know exactly the site where you're building and the specific needs of your location. Correct. Because in this case, not only is straw bales really hard to get. I mean, you can get them, but they're not cheap, especially compared to other things that are available around here. And they don't really serve a function because there's no need for insulation. Correct. I mean, it's just pointless. Yeah. Right. That being said, straw bales have a huge, very wide use all around the world. And so, especially for the large listener base that I have in the United States and other northern climates, this is especially useful for you if, if, if you spend a lot of money either heating or cooling your house for any significant part of the year, a insulative element like straw bales is one of your best bets, especially for keeping consumption down. Agreed, agreed. And no. I, I don't yeah. know about you, but like you were saying, um, starting with that basic sort of rectangular or square shape for the footprint of your building, and then using the interior to go wild with cob elements or adobe elements and using curvilinear uh, aesthetics for the interior. I really agree with that, especially when it comes to using hybrid materials, because then you can really maximize the advantages of any given material that you're using without having to be married to using that thing for the entire structure and also having to deal with the downsides of it. Well, once we get inside, I mean, hey, <laughs> it's totally open. Exactly. And you have so much more wiggle room. You have so much more freedom of what you can do in there because you've already taken care of your 
structural and protective elements. Now, I think one thing that I like, you know, that um, oh, I saw in a few buildings in from Estonia to Finland, <clears throat> where they had given, you know, put an earth plaster on the outside of the building. They were doing basically a really thick base coat out of the clay. But then they, because they have enough wood, they're doing real simple, you know, wood cladding, wood siding um, over them. And that made just great sense to me. I mean, one, I like the look of the buildings, and two, um, it worked. Yeah, I've seen some fantastic uses of that, too. What they often do, I don't know if, if as much in those regions you mentioned, is they char the outside of the wooden cladding, which really helps it to mm. be preserved. And it, oddly enough, makes it more fire-resistant. Yeah, these didn't have it, but I'm sure they'll be, you know, and make it look really interesting. Yeah. And I've also seen them uh, use clay plasters or even uh, some lime renders to do masonry elements on the inside. There's some fantastic things that can be achieved when you're open to all different types of materials. No, no, no question about it. I mean, <laughs> I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's good to get feedback in that way from someone who I've respected for a long time and have looked to a lot of your resources to inform my own projects. So thank you for that. Um, Bill, you've been so generous with your time. Before I let you go, could you share with our listeners how they could get in touch with you and find your books or any upcoming workshops and other resources? Quite simply, Canelo, C-A-N-E-L-O project.com. Um, all our contact information is there. It's pretty much, I mean, they can get me on Facebook under my name. We also have a Canelo project, um, page that when I, <laughs> when I remember, I also post there. And I'm on Instagram as well. And those are probably the three main places to, um, to find us. The only reason that we're .com is that by the time we got around to back, this is when the internet was first getting fired up, when we realized we should be having org, somebody had already taken that and wanted a substantial amount of money for us to buy the rights. And so we've just sort of cruised along figuring it really <laughs> didn't matter all that much anyway. <laughs> I so. understand. That makes sense. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time, Bill. It's been a real pleasure oh, speaking with you. It's been a pleasure. It's we'll have to fun. get in touch and do a follow-up one of these in the future. Sounds good. All right, take you. care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Now we'll move on to a section that I call weekly tips. This week's tip is all about the unseen layers of your plaster that are so crucial to getting a good smooth and even look on your finished coat. In case you missed it from the talk with Bill, adding straw to your base and scratch coats in order to add strength will make it possible to make the layer much thicker when needed. Since straw gives the plaster structure and tensile strength which keeps it from pulling away from the wall and even prevents cracking. If you know you'll be adding on carvings or relief sculptures, this is especially important since sand and clay alone won't hold up to the load and can break under their own weight. Now Siggy Coco, who I interviewed back on episode 7, who's an incredibly accomplished natural plasterer, suggests adding straw to the base coats of plaster to fill in any uneven areas of your walls and to hide any large cracks. She also uses straw-heavy plaster to prevent seams and joints in your finishes, from separating in areas where it's butting up against a different material, such as wood or stone. You can even put straw in the final finish layer, but at this point it really doesn't add any strength, since the layer is far too thin. 
somewhere between a quarter to one eighth of an inch. You should really only consider fibers as an aesthetic additive at this point since it'll certainly show through. So that's your weekly tip. Please write me in the comments section of this episode on the website or email me directly if you'd like to hear more about plastering techniques, straw bale building, or anything else for that matter. Now, for those of you who want to make a giant leap forward in your natural building education, I'm now offering natural building workshops that cover everything you need to know to get started on your own house in an intensive one-week experience. You'll get the chance to mix cob, make adobes, work with stones, natural plasters, and even try out bamboo joinery and much more. We'll go over design essentials and project planning, all while working on hands-on projects that benefit the indigenous Mayan population here in Guatemala. This is a really fantastic deal because your lodging and food are all included in the course tuition. Now our June workshop is already full, but we just announced another date. This one goes from August 27th to September 2nd. And as always, there is limited space in these workshops, so sign up soon to guarantee your spot. Go to the website at AbundantEdge.com and click on the Education tab and Courses and Workshops to get all the information you need. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the Podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from contracting, design, consulting, and education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback and emails to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email us directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again on next week's episode.